Hello there, you awakening wonder, wherever you are in this world, amidst the omni-crisis that will not yield. Well done for continuing to transcend fear in a darkening space at a time of deep complexity. It's more important that we come together now than ever before. We must transcend this complex time by looking within and finding deep power, deep power that some would regard as holy is present with you now. Don't be afraid. We're going to keep going together. Joining me now is Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, Professor of Medicine at Stanford University, co-founder of Illusion of Consensus on Substack. He's recently won in the federal court against the Biden administration for coercing social media companies to censor content. Plainly, as well as a scientist and a doctor, this man is a conspiracy theorist. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, it's a great joy to meet you, sir. Thank you for coming on Stay Free. Thank you, Russell. Thank you for having me. I wonder, can you tell us, sir, what exactly did you express that it was initially subject to censure? It was the Great Barrington Declaration. So it was a, a an article, uh, a, you know, basically a, a proposal that I wrote with Sunetra Gupta of Oxford uh, and Martin Kulldorff of Harvard in October 2020. Uh, you're, I'm sure your audience has heard of this. Uh, I've seen you telling your audience this, so they don't need to be told so much. But basically, the idea was that we knew it was older people that were really vulnerable to COVID. Um, and that young people, uh, especially children, were not particularly vulnerable. The argument was to lift the lockdowns and do focused protection of vulnerable older people. Um, that led to, to a tremendous, uh, you know, like propaganda campaign, a, a campaign that essentially villainized me and Martin and Sunetra as if we wanted to, to kill a far, vast numbers of people. And we were calling for better protection of vulnerable older people. And it led to censorship. Like we were kicked off of... Uh, Facebook for a week, uh, Google deboosted our, 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 you know, you, if you Googled us, it would be on page five and we have all the hit pieces above us, um, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, and then Twitter, uh, of course, uh, made it, made, made it difficult to share. People lost their jobs for signing it. Oh man. Can you just remind me, when was that in this, you know, when was it chronologically? So that was October 2020. It was after, so we wrote it because the spring lockdowns had failed. Uh, it was really clear from the epidemiological data that the that the the COVID was coming back uh, in the fall. It had already come back in several places, and it was also clear that the establishment was going to push for these lockdowns that had already damaged the well-being of the children, of the working class, of the poor worldwide. And we thought it was a tragedy that we were essentially throwing away the futures of these of these vulnerable people in the name of protecting people against a deadly infectious disease, which actually didn't end up protecting anybody, these lockdowns, um, instead of actually just directly protecting the people that were most vulnerable. It's likely, of course, based on just what you've explained in the last couple of minutes that we've yet to fully experience and appreciate the consequences of those actions. Can you tell me? Why, doctor, you feel that what even a few years later seem like perfectly reasonable proposals that if they had been followed, many economic problems, sociological, psychological problems may have been, if not entirely ameliorated, somewhat assuaged. Why was it met with such ferocity? Why? I mean, I think part of it is hubris. So you had uh, a few people at the very top of these medical and uh, bureaucracies, so the, the social bureaucracies, um, that had taken on themselves this mantle of, of, of almost godlike authority. You remember Tony Fauci saying to uh, some reporter, or maybe even to S Senator Rand Paul, uh, if you question me, you're not simply questioning a man, you are questioning science itself. I mean, who says that, Russell? I mean, let's think about the hubris of someone that says, I am science, in effect. You know, la science c'est moi, like if you're, if you're like, you know, Louis XIV or something. Um, and uh, the the idea that there would be credentialed people that would oppose them, that would say, look, you, you're, you, you know, you're saying that there's a scientific consensus in favor of lockdown when, in fact, by the fact, just the very existence of the Great Barrington Declaration means there isn't. <laughs> uh, means that you just created an illusion of consensus that to fool people into to thinking that you're that you ought, we ought to do what you say to say to do rather than having a discussion and a debate, which is really what we we owed the public. Claiming to be the physical embodiment of science, which is a ongoing, never-ending process of analysis, collaboration, the accumulation of data, that's 
that is hubristic. You're right. And in fact, it's more akin to religious demagoguery than even scientific orthodoxy. The early period, or in perhaps the pandemic in its entirety, functioned as a lens that revealed, I think, already present but concealed institutional behaviours and assumptions. Particularly, too, it could be used to identify where convergent interests met and where a kind of unconscious systemic process unfolded that might not require at every step malfeasance, deliberately applied evil, but certainly showed a institutionalism that is worryingly unconscious. But there are points when it seemed quite deliberate. Now, I suppose it's very difficult to prove that there was something nefarious unfolding. But can you tell me from the can you tell me where you think you could have identified the most concerning moments and decisions you know like obviously the censorship the attempt the early attempts to censor the denial of the existence of the um of the barrington declaration like these are key moments are there other significant moments that start to suggest a tendency if not a strategy or conspiracy I mean, you saw this almost from the beginning of the pandemic, uh, maybe even the, the, from the very beginning of the pandemic. Uh, the idea that this virus may have been the the outcome of a in, uh, of a of a research enterprise actually aimed at preventing pandemics. Ironically, uh, that idea was turned into a conspiracy theory, even though it's a viable scientific hypothesis. It's likely even a true hypothesis. Uh, that and, and then and in 2020, anyone who brought that hypothesis up was essentially labeled as a fringe figure, uh, a conspiracy theorist, a racist even, because you're were, you were saying it might have it might have been the Chinese that were involved in this, um, it, it, you know, which is a crazy thing. Like, you, it's okay to say that, that because of strange Chinese eating habits in wet markets, that's how the virus emerged. But it's not okay to say that there was an intentional scientific effort uh, funded by Americans in part, but also conducted in China that led to the virus. That, yeah, that the, the latter is racist, but the former is not. It was, it was an strange, but yeah, people who, who said that there might actually have been a, a virus that was created in a lab um, were deemed racist. That was a, and then conspiracy theorists. And it was by the same people that suppressed the Great Barrington Declaration using very, very similar tactics to deploy the press to smear and destroy the reputations of anyone that disagreed with the the, the central central powers that be. Actually, Russell, you said one thing I think is really important is this confluence of of uh, this confluence of of, of in incentives, right? So I don't think it was a conspiracy theory in one, in one sense. I, I think, like, so for instance, the pharmaceutical companies they they viewed this as a as a huge opportunity. I don't think they drove it, but it was like they jumped in, right? Uh, a, a lot of people who were uh, you know in, in governments um, gained a lot of power from this. And I, again, I don't think they were conspiracy. It's not a conspiracy theory to say, say that they jumped in to take advantage of the chaos. Um, a, a, there's a lot that goes into like exactly what led to this. I think a lot of it was opportunistic, but the central sin was hubris, and the and the central tactic was smearing and censorship of of uh, outside voices uh, that criticized uh, criticized the people that were designing the pandemic response. If you are interested in centralizing authority and increasing authority, particularly beyond national sovereignty and the reach of democracy, there is going to be necessary censure because we live in a time where divergent, opposing and dissident voices are now at least have the potential to be platformed and to gain incredible traction. And it seems to be a pretty prominent, evident and plain tactic that to undermine the credibility of, as you say, dissenting voices, it's almost a uniform, observable strategy. If you cannot win the argument because it's unwinnable, because what's being claimed is true. Let's take simply the case of the Great Barrington Declaration or, you know, the lab leak theory. Then what you, of course, have to do is undermine where those voices are coming from. And you're right, this sort of extraordinary array of hypocritical tactics that are deployed suggest a kind of... Um, it would be on nihilism, kind of a beyond amorality, and into almost a, a kind of cynicism that really scares me. Particularly, you know, given that I've had recently some experiences of how these institutions can function. Did you um, note the corroborating component that the media were willing to 
perform? Did you note that there was a great willingness in addition to the censor practiced and social media spaces uh, among in legacy media uh, sites to condemn, criticize you and frame you? Because even when you said that, even though this is stuff I know about already, when you, I just hear Harvard, Stanford, Oxford in relation to a scientific endeavor and, you know, in, in the uh, furthering a discourse, I think, oh, well, this sounds pretty legitimate. How, how did they even bypass that? Well, I mean, they were uh, almost immediately after we wrote the declaration, I started, there was hit pieces about me and Sinatra and Martin um, essentially accusing us of wanting to let the virus rip. Uh, the argument was that we were uh, somehow being deeply irresponsible by wanting to just ignore the virus. Even Again, as I said, even though we wanted focus protection, you saw story after story in mainstream media saying this, essentially pushing this propaganda campaign. Um, the, like in the, there was a story in the Washington Post. Uh, there was a story in the New York Times. Uh, story after story, essentially pushing this lie. Uh, what we wanted was a discussion of how, how to better protect vulnerable older people. And in fact, I did a uh, uh, and, and now I, I'd, I'd already had experience with this, Russell, before before this. In, in April of 2020, I'd written a study sent, it was basically showing that the disease had spread much more broadly than people had realized, even as early as April of 2020, using uh, antibody evidence from, from blood in, in the population. And uh, what, what we found was that there are 50 cases, you know, for every single person that had been identified as a case, the infection fatality rate was much lower. That led to a tremendous number of personal hit pieces against me. Uh, allegations that I had taken money to change the study, which was an absolute lie. Uh, I, I hit pieces against my wife, who had helped, who written an email to my my kids' uh, middle school listserv, encouraging them to join the study because she'd committed the sin of saying that if you have a positive antibody, that might mean you are uh, you 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 are immune, <laughs> which has turned out to be true. You know, um, uh, it, 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 and it was for me personally as a scientist. I just written papers and published them in journals all my life. I never faced that kind of media assault. I felt helpless to protect my family. Uh, I for a, a month I lost thirty pounds because I couldn't sleep. I forgot to eat. Um, you know, in April of April May twenty twenty. Oh, um, and 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 for me it was it was a very very difficult time. The power of the essentially the the, the power of of these of these conventional media sources to excommunicate you is tremendous. Um, and I, I felt uh, I felt the full brunt of that before. And before I decided I was just going to need to keep doing what I, my job, which was to you know say what the scientific evidence said and to, and, and pr provide health policy advice to the public. Um, sorry, go go ahead, Russell. I was thinking about like yours is a name that I've heard from the beginning because it was a significant, it was a pivotal moment in spite of how it was handled. The Great Barrington Declaration and your name, whilst I'm still never entirely confident. Jay Bhattacharya, uh, like was one of the names that was synonymous with the credible opposition to the dominant narrative. And for me, therefore, legitimized my own concern and uh, amateur analysis of how the scientific orthodoxy was being mobilized to legitimize authority. And it's almost at odds with what science is supposed to be essentially it made me realize what dogmatism is and that dogmatism is not uh, alloyed indecipherably or inextricably to religion or politics dogma means that you're willing to say stuff like i'm science if you argue with me you're arguing with science it's a kind of trait it's a sort of a human trait and to hear that you actually suffered in the way that you just described, obviously particularly because of recent experiences that I've encountered, should we say. Like, uh, it provides a sort of a, you know, you were right. You were actually right. Um, what does it mean, like, to someone like you, who's a, a scientist, a career scientist at Harvard, whose previous life has never taken you into these um, sort of chasms and schisms of controversy what does it tell you about how science can be industrialized weaponized deployed defied utilized in order to create conformity oppression isn't i mean it must terrify you i mean it really does i, I mean I, I you know of course i knew the power of science i mean that's the that's one of the reasons that anyone enters science is because it is a powerful tool to learn about the physical world 
through this process. But it's I always viewed it as a fundamentally humble thing, right? If I am doing science, I have some idea. It's always a it's a provisional idea, and it's it's tempered by data and by other critics. Uh, who say, look, Jay, you've, you've thought of this wrong. Uh, th- this piece of data disagrees with how you think. And then I, I change my mind on the basis of those data. It's, it's a fundamentally humbling thing if you're actually going to do science for a living. To see it turned into dogma, as you say, is, is, is a violation of basically every, every norm that I've lived by my, in my entire career. Uh, that, like it, it basically means that I don't really need to know what the data say. I don't really need to be creative and think about different hypotheses. All I have to do is I have to just pay attention to, to what the most powerful people inside the scientific community say, and then I'll know the truth. Um, as you say, it's not simply, it's not, it's not a matter of like a particular, you know, it's not a religious thing. It's not, not even just even a political thing. It is just, I think, is a common human thing to have that hubris. Even scientists themselves often have that hubris. But when you get things right, I mean, it's like you feel like you're on, on the, on the top of the world. Uh, you, you make some prediction and it comes out to be true. Um, but then the next prediction you make is going to be wrong. I mean, you have to be, you have to remember all the time in science that the net, that every idea is it may be met with a fact that disproves it even if you had it even if you're the brightest person even even einstein was wrong over, over and over again um uh, you, you know of course he was right about some fundamental things um so i think i think that that humility is the the, the loss of it during the pandemic um was a real shock to me uh, and but then that's then to see how that power is used in the world outside of science right because the the ability to tell the distinct to distinguish between true and false you know if if you have an entity that can do that the power is tremendous it's it's far beyond what kings and 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 uh, you know of ancient times had or or even you know it's, it's analogous to what uh what the what the, like maybe the medieval church had like you can you can you say the distinction between here is which was true and false but you know even even within religious traditions the best of religious traditions have at their center of fundamental humility you know oh. god is beyond us uh we are not god uh so it, it's it's every human endeavor i think faces this but in during and during the pandemic it was it was deployed at scale to say look uh jay uh from stanford and Ma- martin from harvard and sunetra from oxford are are wrong at lo- uh, just just because tony fauci says so um, and you know, and, and by the way, we discovered this was ju- this was not just like an organic reaction. This was a specific organized campaign. Four days after we wrote the declaration, the head of the National Institute of Health, Francis Collins, wrote an email to Tony Fauci, calling me Martin and Sinatra, fringe epidemiologist, F-R-I-N-G-E. I have a, a card that I made up says fringe epidemiology on it now. Um, uh, it's so it's it, it was one of these things where like. The head of the National Institute of Health, and then he called for a devastating takedown in an email to Tony Fauci. Devastating takedown. He used those words. Um, and that led to the propaganda campaign. He used they used the the control of what the press sees as true and false to, to smear us and destroy us. Um, and you had to, you know, it's it's one of these things where it's just some if it's some random scientist doing, it, even a prominent scientist doing it, that's one thing. But the head of the National Institute of Health controls forty-five billion dollars of money. Oh God. That and that control and that that amount of money essentially makes and breaks the careers of every biomedical scientist of note in the U.S. and many scientists of note outside the U.S. It's very difficult to cross someone like that. Right? If someone like that says this guy is a fringe epidemiologist, let's do a devastating takedown. Even a scientist that agrees with us is going to be is going to want to stay silent. It's unfortunate and ridiculous that they use the phrase devastating takedown because that's the sort of thing that people with evil intentions say they don't say that you look like the baddies let us do a draconian (laughs) and wicked I have a plan a coup it's it's ridiculous Um, did you were you surprised by how few people were willing to support you were you heartened by the support that you received and did you were there time I mean given that you just said you lost 30 pounds and you didn't sleep and you forgot to eat which all seems pretty unscientific to me, as a matter of fact. Should have been paying attention in the lab of your life. Uh, I wonder, like, was it interpersonally challenging and did you get a lot of heat from Harvard and stuff? Well, yeah, so I'm I'm actually Stanford. But, like, yeah, I I, I got a lot of grief from friends of mine at Stanford. Um, And and they were, and you know, a lot of, uh, you know, but but on the other hand, almost a million people signed the declaration. I I hope you signed it, Russell. Um, There were tens, ten thousand, tens of thousands of scientists and epidemiologists signed it. Uh, It created a community of people that found each other. 
that's that before that felt isolated and alone. Huh. Uh, as you said, Russell, for you, you heard it and it gave you a sense that like you weren't crazy, that you were there's some sense that you, you know, what you were seeing with your own eyes uh, was was, you know, could be true. It wasn't just some figment. Um, I mean, that was that that was what one of the major goals of the declaration to tell people, you know, we lots of scientists are seeing what you were seeing. Lots of scientists are saying, look, look at the devastation we're causing to the poor. Like, you know, in Uganda, four and a half million children were out of school for two years because of the lockdowns. Four, I mean, uh, actually, 15 million people, kids out of school for two years, four and a half million never came back to school in Uganda. And it turns out the UN did this report on on, the, on this around Africa. It turns out a lot of those kids didn't come back because the, the little girls were sold into sexual slavery and the little boys were put into child labor. Because the reason is their families were put on the brink of starvation by the economic dislocations caused by the lockdowns. We put those poor families in this like devastating bind where they had to like essentially either uh, do this terrible thing to their children or starve them. Um, that's what those lockdowns were doing. That's that's the cruelty of the lockdowns. That's and a lot of scientists were seeing saying, look, this is not even stopping the disease from spreading. Why are we doing this? Let's Thanks. protect the elderly better. That's that's the and you know, we weren't protecting them with the lockdowns. It was the opposite of science. And uh, I thank you for introducing me to a level of reality that I'd not pondered because I was still somewhat selfishly looking at the lockdown for the personal inconvenience I'd endured. And perhaps on occasion, I would think of the psychological impact and the educational impact and their mental health and suicide and all of those other things that we were told not to think about or worry about when people were speculatively discussing those things. And now to introduce to it rafts of almost inconceivable suffering uh, for children in Uganda, that's, uh, that's a new component to consider. I, I felt uh, the, the phrase I found myself using was, but in this instance, science is a subset of a different ideology, whether that's an economic ideology or an authoritarian ideology or a sort of an unconscious ideology. It's a subset. Science is not freely functioning. We are, it's science within censorship. So it's no longer worthy of the name, therefore. Uh, do you seem did this idea of, as kind of a subjugated science, uh, a deployed science, does that seem right to you, Doctor? I mean, that's exactly right. You can't have science without the ability to speak to one another. To be able to freely with you know without undue influence, uh, a lot of the distortions in science that we documented before the pandemic come from the, this. So, so, like for instance, the role that pharmaceutical money pay plays in scientific uh, scientific output, huge huge amounts of money poured into doing science that's uh, essentially like aimed at at making sure that that pharmaceutical companies do well. Right. It, it, that's that's distorted science. That that was known before the pandemic. And there's like, you know, mechanisms in place to try to, you know, you don't want to say if you're a pharmaceutical company, you can't do science. What you want to say is, look, you have to declare that you are a pharmaceutical company funded scientist. And now you can you can assess, use that in your assessment of the scientific result. Right. Uh, I, I personally never taken any pharmaceutical company money. Uh, so I never I just because I wanted to stay independent of that. Wow. You realize then on some personal and ethical level that to take that money, and this is not a judgment of, obviously, it seems like the majority, I presume, of people were funded in that manner. Uh, but you personally made a choice that that would impede your ability to indeed be a scientist. And you were right about that. It's been proven. I, I wonder, Jay, what you think, uh, if you'd like to uh, explore further the uh, necessity for discourse conversation counter narratives in uh, in the pursuit of true uh, objectivity uh, and how that aligns with your recent experiences in uh, the federal court and the attempts to further curtail legislate against free speech by the biden administration Can you tell us about that recent and i understand that sure. you were victorious uh like that, that, uh, that, that, the whole experiences we've been talking about led me to, let me, there's like a suspicion that it, that this suppression of scientific speech wasn't simply an organic thing. That in fact, there was a campaign organized by governments to suppress scientific discussion online. Um, a lot of people suspected with social media is doing it, right? So YouTube, for instance, uh, banning your video. I mean, the last time I was on, Russell, you told me that, that you were, you were only going to say, 
approved things to put on YouTube and then the rest you'll put on Rumble. That's right. Right. Uh, why are there approved things for someone to talk, having a discussion about scientific matters to be put on YouTube? Why, why, why can't we just have that discussion? Scientific discussion requires there to be uh, you know, people dis- disagreeing. One person will be right, one person will be wrong. That's it's normal. If you suppress things you always think are wrong, you're not going to have science. Um, so, so the question is, why are these social media companies doing this? Their interest is to foster free discussion. These are these are not illegal ideas. Uh, they, these, you know, are there such a thing as illegal ideas that would not, not, you're not, they're not supposed to be? Their, their business interests would normally cut in favor of allowing these this kind of speech, and yet they didn't. It turns out, so there was a, the Missouri and Louisiana Attorney General's offices approached me, uh, Martin Kuldorf, Aaron Cariotti, another another scientist, and asked us if we'd be willing to join any lawsuit against the Biden administration. That lawsuit in federal court led to discovery where we read the emails of a tremendous number of federal officials in the in this in the White House, in the CDC, in the Surgeon General's office, in the FBI, in 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 uh, in, in the State Department. Uh, basically, what the what the, the Biden administration did was that they would contact social media companies, give them a hit list for censorship. These are the ideas you need to censor. These are the people you need to censor and use. And they would then threaten the social media companies that if you don't threaten, if you don't censor these people and these ideas, we're going to regulate you out of existence. Now, often the, the threat was implied. Uh, so, you know, and a lot of these social media companies was like Stockholm syndrome. They would just say, say, oh, yeah, what's the next thing we need to censor? Because they just didn't want to fight. Um some of them fought back sometimes, but it was it was that that whole the censorship industrial complex essentially. Like the judge called it a new ministry of truth. Wow, using quoting directly quoting Orwell, um, uh, and uh, you know it was a federal judge that that found this. Then it was the Biden administration then appealed it, saying that they needed to be able to censor to keep the public safe. Uh, and, the, and then a district court uh, basically said, you can't do that. That violates the American First Amendment. Um, I was I, and this is just this, by the way, all this just came out uh, this this year, the, just in the past this summer, actually. But the, the, the judge issued his ruling in July 4, 2023. Um, so what we now see is part of the mechanisms by which the scientific discussion during the pandemic was suppressed. The policy discussion was suppressed was by direct government policy. Governments decide, and I, I'm certain it's not just the United States government that did this. I, I know the UK government was involved in this as well, um, based on on reports I've seen from organizations like Big Brother Watch. Uh, you know, you, what you have is essentially a government policy in the West to suppress dissident voices because they think that the dissidents are so dangerous to public health. At least that's the that's the the argument that they make when they're pressed on it in court. <laughs> but it doesn't seem that the way that they behave generally is motivated by the desire to preserve, protect and improve public health. Otherwise, you would not have made those decisions uh, relatively early in the pandemic period that caused so much damage and even for children to be sold into sexual slavery. It seems that these choices were at best misguided and at worst malevolent that dissidents and opposing the domination dominating narratives is being gosh i sometimes feel it's not even incrementally is in a way that appears to be coordinated the possibility for dissent is being shut down legislation in the uk the new again the sort of ludicrously and somewhat ironically named uh, online safety bill in canada they've introduced new laws to control uh, information in these type of spaces and based on what you've just told us and the kind of relationships between government and social media platforms this legislation is merely enshrining something that's been happening less formally and will now happen to a far greater degree and the dangers that you've described the evident observable actual danger that has taken place the lives that have been lost the lives that have been ruined it feels like this is gonna get worse now i understand that the um, youtube are using the who's medical guidelines now not just for covid but for all diseases the who is preparing a pandemic treaty that will allow them to further bypass national sovereignty, taking, I think, 5% of the budgets of men, uh, like of any nation that's a participant in the treaty. And people's fears that 
the censorship is increasing, surveillance is increasing, glo globalism. And by what I mean by globalism is that there are unelected bodies that are not tethered to nations and therefore are not democratically accountable, are making decisions transcendent of democracies. And so it's like this subject that we're discussing that used to just be about, oh, like the pandemic, which we're already being sort of invited to forget and just move beyond because, as I say, of the omni-crisis of the... Endless wars, escalating wars, the the whole just sort of climate of horror and fracture. It appears to me that this is a significant issue, and it's one that is going to is in, is increasing in its power. These kind of measures are increasing, in spite of your recent significant victory. I, I mean, I, I I share with you the, the 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 dread of the future if we allow this kind of infrastructure to to, to stay in place. Um, the the like the, you mentioned the WHO. I mean, the, you know, the second largest funder of the WHO is the is the Gates Foundation. It's that guy, but doesn't he also <laughs> like, invest in vaccines? Wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, and you know, the WHO. It's not as if they got things right all the time. Like the, during the pandemic, after a few days after we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, the Great Barrington Declaration is premised on the idea that if you get COVID and recover, you have some immunity. Right. That's what herd immunity is based on, like, I mean, which is true. You get some immunity after you after you get recovered from COVID. The, the WHO changed the definition of, of herd immunity to exclude immunity after after recovery from the disease. Only vaccines produced immunity in, in, in the definition of herd immunity. And they did that in response to the Great Barrington Declaration. The WHO uh, put out misinformation over and over information at odds with the scientific data over and over and over again during the pandemic. They downplayed the damage to the poorest places of the world. They recommended the lockdowns because the Chinese, they, in February 2020, they thought that China's had what China did had worked, that the lockdowns would get rid of the disease everywhere if we just did what China did. Um, the, the World Health Organization has a lot to answer for. And to have the YouTube then say, OK, we're going to take this organization that failed so fundamentally during the pandemic and take it as our lodestar, the science itself, and we'll suppress everyone that disagrees with them. Well, what, what, you know, why even have science? I mean, that's that's one of these <laughs> things where, like, you 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 essentially are done. You know, you created this epistemic bubble that that cannot be pierced uh, because you say this organization has is has a monopoly on the truth. Um, it's it is really scary. I do think that uh, the American First Amendment. I before the Missouri versus Biden case, I had started to despair. During the case, and, and especially with the recent rulings, I, I'm, I'm starting to feel a glimmer of hope, Russell. I, mean, oh. I hope, I hope you, you don't talk me out of it, because I think I think the American First Amendment might be strong enough to shatter this whole regime. Do you think so? And I'm not trying to talk you out of hope. I need hope. I need your hope, and I certainly need my own. I'm just looking at the article you wrote, I think, on Substack about your experience, I think, on arriving in America and becoming an American citizen at least and you talk about the First Amendment and how that it's not only constitutional but it's almost formative and it's in some ways the crucible of all other American values, rights and even perhaps even human rights. Can you sort of, re uh, sort of reprise sure. what you mean? So when... Uh... <laughs> I got a little emotional when I wrote that piece, Russell. It was it was for Barry Weiss's Substack, uh, of a free press. Um, she, she so I I uh, when the July Fourth ruling came down from the judge saying that the Biden administration had violated the first my First Amendment rights, um, you know my free speech rights. Uh, I was uh, I thought back to my uh, my you know when I, when we first arrived in the United States, I was four years old. My uh, parents came from from India. And you know they they uh, you know they they came for economic opportunity. My dad was an engineer. My mom ran a daycare center. But like in in, in India, it was much harder to. Do. But but they also came in part because, you know, the instability of of political regimes in in India. Uh, it was like nine, the mid seventies, early seventies. Just shortly after we came, uh, Indira Gandhi, the prime minister of India, declared an emergency. Essentially, suspended Indian democracy, threw her opponents in jail, uh, suspended ba basic civil rights. Uh, you know, killed a lot of people actually that opposed her um, during a state of emergency that she declared. Uh, and, you know, and I, and I remember, like in my family, I was young then, very young then. Uh, but the, the the just the the horror that. Uh, that this could happen in their home country and that and also the relief that we were in a country that valued free speech where that kind of suppression of dissident ideas couldn't ever happen. 
um, that for me was a formative value, like the sense of like, you know, the United States can stand as a bulwark against this kind of authoritarian power that uh, and and uh, you know, when the judge ruled in favor of the First Amendment in, in, in this case, it, it cracked open, uh, I think, this entire enterprise. It allowed because it doesn't take much, Russell. It just takes a few people telling the truth that are heard widely that then shatters the power of these authoritarians. It just it, it, I, I really very firmly believe that it, you know, it, can, it can cost a lot to the people telling the truth, of course. But but that that cost is part of how we renew our societies that we bring bring these uh, the, these basic fundamental uh, uh, values back to our societies, fundamental ideas of uh, you know the, the scientific ideas like we've been talking about, ideas of, of free free expression. Those those I, th- I think free expression to me is the the fundamental thing that allows uh, uh, even David to overthrow Goliath. <sighs> It seems that we move in our conversations between the importance of the work that you do because it is empirical, because you're able to say, wait a minute, that's not true. I can prove it's not true. This is not conjecture. This is not modeling. This is not theology. This is, is, look, (laughs) we can show you. And to, in a sense, what can be extrapolated from that and what can be observed when that kind of data is censored, shut down, ignored, uh, attacked. So it's interesting that the pandemic period had nestled within it so many little crises, sociological, ideological, philosophical, judicial, political, and, and, uh, and even w- within the biological um, component, the, the cover-up of myocarditis and the administering of vaccines. You know, if you sort of there's the non-medical interventions. There's the, you know the social intervention. We're sort of like now beginning to go. Okay, all right. Well, the lockdowns were wrong. The mask didn't work. Social distancing was arbitrary. That's why people were having parties during it because they knew it wasn't dangerous. They were just letting us know it was dangerous. You said the you know an area of conjecture, of course, is. Oh, now they have recognized that it is possible to impose levels of previously unimagined control on a population as long as they legitimize it. It is possible to destroy dissenting voices as long as you are able to use information that legitimizes the destruction of those voices. When it comes to uh, myocarditis and the increased rates of myocarditis in people that have taken vaccines and the way that the information was initially framed... Can you tell us what we have learned with that particular little lie? Now that one, that's that is a little bit heartbreaking because, uh, like, there, uh, you know, when when the the vaccines were first introduced, uh, they had run uh, honest studies, like large scale randomized studies, t- tens of thousands of people enrolled in a control arm that included placebo. Uh, but you know, the thing about vaccines, when you go from tens of thousands to billions, you're going to learn things that you didn't know automatically. There are going to be people that uh, have conditions that are a result of the vaccine sometimes that you that you learn about. The way that it's always been handled in the past is an honesty of like, okay, if you see these conditions in this group, you tell people in that group, maybe don't take this vaccine, maybe take a different vaccine, maybe maybe uh, uh, you put it off and sit, uh, do do a cost of, tell them to go talk to their doctor to decide what's best for them. A, a, a lot, a lot, of, a lot of like you know, sort of like nuanced discussion based on what you learn after the vaccine's been rolled out. Um, one of the things we learned very early on in the rollout of this vaccine is that young men taking this vaccine have a high higher elevated risk of myocarditis myocarditis is inflammation of the heart muscle and um you know it's it's it, it can be deadly it's not like it's a benign thing most most people that get it it goes away but it it's 
not something you want, and it can last a long time. It can be debilitating. It can even be deadly, right? And so in young men, you see on elevated risk, there's a fight in the scientific literature about exactly how elevated it is, maybe one in 2,000, one in 10,000. I mean, I'll believe anywhere in between there. Um, uh, and, and I don't, I, and, I, and I think, but that's high enough to say, well, look, I'm going to give it to billions of people, including, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of young men. Uh, I'm going to end up getting a lot of cases of myocarditis. And we need to, do, we need to, you know, normally with vaccines, you want something to be so safe that no one would question, not, not just that vaccine, but all vaccines. If you have a one in 5,000 risk of some severe outcome, you would probably be very careful with that vaccine for that group. Because you don't want to create uh, this skepticism about the about all vaccines, because you're saying seeing a subgroup of people hurt by this vaccine. Um, that's what they did, by the way, in the United States with the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. When they saw an elevated risk of thrombocytopenia and, and clotting in uh, older women and middle-aged women, they paused the rollout of the vaccine. And that was the, that, you know, I mean, I, I, my colleague, Martin Kuldorf, who wrote the Great Parenting Declaration, disagreed with me about this, but I actually think it was probably the reasonable thing to do. Um, you know, again, you could argue with me about this, whether I'm right or wrong. But the point is that's consistent with what we normally do with vaccines. As soon as there's a signal... We, we pause, we're careful about it, because even relatively rare signals can, can undermine public confidence in all vaccines. That's why most of the traditional vaccines that are out there, we have a lot of, a lot of confidence in it because they, 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 when they pull them every time there's something, just a few, one in a million cases of something, and they're like very careful about it. With this vaccine, that caution was thrown to the wind, especially with the mRNA vaccines and, and, and the signal for young men. They should have, it should have led to a pause for young men taking the mRNA vaccines. And it didn't. Certainly vaccines have been cancelled on the basis of much uh, statistically lower impact than that, I, I understand. And this um, sort of crisis of confidence in our institutions and science itself has to be halted at some point, because in a way, science is one of the few things that can prevent us becoming hysterical. Because I wondered, as many people surely must, if you have felt the, the kind of certainty that you've had in the institutions that, to a degree, you participate in, if you consider at least science to be an institution, although I recognise there are many, many um, sectors within that, plainly the funding being a significant uh, point of difference. I, I wonder if, like, you know, when you uh, say something like, you know, vaccines historically have been, like, you know, they're, they're verifiably much safer. Is there anything that happened in the pandemic period that made you think, hold on a minute, I'm going to have to review the trust that I'd bestowed on either other medical or legislative or regulatory, you know, like, for example, Andy Fauci, most people didn't think about Andy Fauci very much prior to that. I feel like during the AIDS crisis, some people were like, whoa, he's, this guy's making some crazy decisions. And many might argue some crazy dollars as well through some of those royalty arrangements. But generally speaking, it's not something you think about. I wonder if you've had the opportunity, chance or inclination to review some areas that you previously would have considered that didn't require further analysis. I mean, it's funny, Russell, you asked that because I actually have on my bookshelf somewhere uh, a textbook that Anthony Fauci edited from which I learned internal medicine. You know, it, it was, uh, you know, was, I, before the pandemic, I had tremendous admiration for him. Um I had to revise that admiration considerably. Uh, I had a, I've been at Stanford for 37 years, first a student, then as professor. Um, and uh, I, you know, the, the motto of the university is the winds of freedom blow. And I just they didn't blow during the pandemic. Uh, a lot of my colleagues I have been, I'm now deeply disappointed in. Uh, I, and, you know, I, I do think you have to be you have to, you have to resist the urge to say everything I knew before was wrong. Uh, mm. I don't think that's true, mm. but it is an absolutely an opportunity to revisit those things and try to understand some of the things. Why do I think those things? Do I still do I still think those things in light of new evidence? It's we always have to do this. Like, I mean, you know, in, in any endeavor, we're going to take a lot of things for granted. Science has to take, by the way, and you do science, you take a lot of things for granted. I'm not going to revisit, uh, you know, gravity. Uh, <laughs> you know, not that I. <laughs> You know, so I just it's not like I, I have to I have to take for granted certain things when I do science. Um, and you're, you're right. I mean, it's, it's 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 but I think part of science is genius is that we can go back and question even those foundational things, um, you know, and you, most of the time those foundational things are foundational for a reason. Uh, there's a lot of evidence behind them, but it's it's not wrong to go back and, and to, to look. Uh, and on vaccines, I actually worked on vaccine safety in, with the, the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. for before the pandemic. 
Um, th- that that kind of questioning happens all the time with vaccines. It's not. It's a normal part of why vaccines uh, are recommend can be recommended at scale. Is because as soon as there's a safety signal, you say, okay, well, even if it's not really, a, it's even if it turns out to be just a statistical artifact, you still are with an abundance of caution. You pull the vaccine, hmm. right? Uh, it's frustrating, but you do that because you want to make sure that the public sees vaccines as safe. It's the process by which you do that, that that allows the vaccines to be seen as safe. And I am completely in favor of revisiting. I mean, I think it's part of like that's part of what we do. I, I suspect many of the vaccines we have that are, I think are quite essential, like the the MMR vaccine, we'll see is essentially even if we revisit. But maybe others won't. I don't know. I mean, this is a scientific process. Uh, personally, I'm, I'm, I'm confident enough that I would give my kids those traditional childhood vaccines. Um, but I can understand the desire to revisit, given how poorly our scientific institutions, our regulatory institutions did during the pandemic to protect the, the, the health of the public. I can completely understand where that impetus is coming from. Yeah, because you start the question, who's spending money to ensure that non-profitable drugs are promoted, that profitable drugs are rigorously explored? Where's that appetite coming from? And what is this trend? And what was revealed during that period that's a very sort of open-hearted and open-minded answer and i was thinking about like you know revisiting foundational principles and it appears that it's yeah epochs are defined by those moments of revision and revelation whether it's hellier centrism if i'm saying it right or in like the nature of sub-particular reality when those revelations are made it defines it defines our species. It defines our kind. It, de- it defines our time, and that's why the sort of the neutrality and objectivity of science has to be sort of protected in the same way that something like free speech has to be protected. When science is a subset of financial interests and methods of dominion, then you are. It's difficult to see how you're not going to end up in a, some kind of form of tyranny as a result of that, because of the biases accumulatively will lead to the end of the ability for debate and the ability to undergird dissident voices in, in, in so in so many ways um getting to the sort of not the heart of the matter but a significant part of the matter it seems that uh, here it says moderna and pfizer made a thousand dollars of profit every second they charge governments up to 24 times more than the potential cost of generic production it seems that there were many sort of systemic problems plainly between the kind of relationships between let's just say government and big tech government and big pharma it seems that what's needed is new capacity for regulation and i would say decentralization of power breaking up of monopolies in all the areas where they appear to be able to reign uh, to reduce indeed end the ability of companies of this scale to influence government through lobbying and other forms of funding and these are the kind of ideas that need to be discussed in independent media and won't be discussed outside of it absolutely i mean i think that that there's a there's almost a revolving door it seems like the, I, I didn't really know this really uh I, mean, I knew that it existed but i didn't realize the scope of it before the pandemic um the regulatory agencies that are supposed to to oversee and represent the public interest you know the the food and drug administration the cdc a, a lot of this a lot of the a lot of that has the, there's this like revolving door with with uh with, with industry where where like and and there's you know there's this there's a sense of where the 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 regulators who are supposed to protect the public from the depredations of the pharmaceutical companies are often representing the pharmaceutical companies uh you know it's like the 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 you you have like former fda chairs now on the board of you know, big pharmaceutical companies. Um, it just looks really bad. Um, and it is really bad. Like you, you want a independent regulator, uh, and you got, and governments in during the pandemic essentially became partners with pharmaceutical companies. Like they, those, the, the pharma, uh, you mentioned Moderna and Pfizer, the governments around the world, the contracts they wrote with them essentially said, there's no liability if you have a bad product. What entity ever has that deal if you have a bad product you have to you're part of the deal of capitalism is that you are responsible for it you have to make make amends for it you have to pay penalties for it right you have the wrong incentives in place if you don't have some 
some uh, possibility that if you do something bad, that something bad will happen to you, right? Uh, and and essentially that's what the these deals with the pharmaceutical companies did is they told the pharmaceutical companies you can you can have a bad product and you don't have to you don't have to pay the price for it. We got we get- the people with it. I can't believe it that I'd ever say we have to get back to capitalism. Sort of like it's sort of with, I didn't realize that we'd gone so far beyond it in so many areas where subsidized energy companies are able to profit in energy crises, medical pharmaceutical companies benefit in health and medical crises, military industrial complex organizations benefit in wars. Seems that there's some opportunity for real review. Uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your easy, effortless, or at least it seems effortless, ability to communicate complex ideas gently. And thank you for your the plain morality of your position and the lack of hubris and presence of humility that's most heartening for me. You suggested that somehow I could diminish your hope over the course of this conversation. Certainly you've lifted and increased mine. So thank you. Thank you, Russell. It's a real, real pleasure and honor to talk with you. There you are. Beautiful conversations can still take place even in this increasing omni-crisis, even in this fragmented and fractured space. That's why it's so important that you support us. If you can, become an Awakened Wonder and support these conversations. Also, support Dr. J. Support Dr. J by going to Illusion of Consensus on Substack. Follow him on X where he's Dr. J Bhattacharya. It's sort of how it sounds. We'll post the spelling in the description there. Next week on the show, we've got another fantastic week and you're going to love this. You're going to love it. And I'm going to want you to join us. That's right. Live to speak with Matt Taibbi. You know who Matt is. Larry Sanger, he's one of the founders of Wikipedia, who believes that Wikipedia has gone a little off track. And Asim Malhotra, a man for whom I had to invent a sign because of his ability to be loquacious. Click that Red Awaken button, become a member of the locals community. Here's just some of the things we're offering. Meditations, readings, ways to change the world. What's this community about now? What are we doing this for? Are we serious? Because, you know, you listen to Jay Bhattacharya for a moment and you think, "Uh uh-oh, Revolution required. And those of you that support our movement this week include Tom Town, Great Candidate, Dino Dean Free, Brock 23, and Lila, Lila 16. Join us tomorrow, not for more of the same. No, not for that, but for more of the different. Until then, if you can, stay free. Many switching, switch on, switch off. Many switching, switch on, switch off. Switch on, switch off. Switch on, switch off.